0: Amen let's pray together and as we go to prayer I want to share with you we've read a number of scriptures each one rich in its own way and I see already that God is just sort of weaving some themes together that are going to become evident to us here in a matter of moments but I want to share with you a verse a couple of verses that I came across this morning let's say this Psalm 113 who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning that as we have gathered here as brothers and sisters in Christ, gathered in your name, gathered to seek your face, gathered to to sing your praise. Father, that each one in our own way We have a story to tell as as believers in Jesus Christ of how you looked down from heaven above. You saw our plight. You saw where we were. You recognized. You knew our need better than we knew it ourselves before we even knew it ourselves. And you chose us for yourself. You opened our eyes to sin and righteousness and judgment. You, You caused us to recognize that Jesus is the one and only answer to the need, the deepest need of our soul. And Father, we stand here this morning before you in worship, in prayer. Father, gathered again as as brothers and sisters in the Lord for another Sunday. Father, not because we are good, but because we are in fact yours. And Father, there's no better thing to know, there's no better place to be than to be sure and to be confident that we belong to Jesus Christ. And as such, we are your children. Father, I thank you for the way you've enabled us to worship you in song this morning. We thank you for the gift of music and the way it it lifts our hearts and and, and opens and prepares us, Lord, to meet with you, to give to you, to hear from you and respond to you. Father, I thank you for the testimony we've just been given of a work you're doing in a faraway place probably none of us have ever been, and yet literally transforming lives across the globe, because that's just what you do. And Father, we thank you this morning now for the gift of your word. And Father, as we shift our attention from... From singing aloud to, to digging into the scriptures, Father, we ask as always that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we can trust you today to, to be the one who guides us in truth. And Holy Spirit, we thank you and we plead with you to be the one who will guard us from error and distraction. Holy Spirit, we invite you to deliver us from, from apathy, from pride, from hard hearts, from from distracted hearts. And Father, in these precious moments together, our prayer above all else is that you would in fact help us to see the Lord Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly today in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only today in the preaching of your word. And Father, when we walk out these doors in a little while, back into whatever this day and and the week ahead holds in store, Father, I ask with all my heart that it would be with fresh joy. It'll be with renewed hope, with a, a a deeper zeal and passion to be transformed from the inside out that we might live well for Jesus Christ in a dark and dying and crooked generation. It is him we seek. It is him we love. It is him we worship. And it is in his name that we pray as all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, boys and girls, you are, as always, dismissed for Children's Church and your time together in the Word. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to take it out this morning and and turn it with me to the book of Esther once again. I want you to meet me this morning in Esther chapter 2, where we are continuing this look at a couple of God's genuine world changers, a couple of, of women whose stories are really unlike so many others, so many... Such a a transformational work that God did in and through them that we are seeking to learn from. For those of you who may be visiting today, for those of you who may be here for the first time in a long time, we have been working our way through this for the past many months. We went through the story of Ruth and we saw how God used one woman in impoverished situation. Uh, A widow, a a childless woman, a, a woman who in that culture at that point in time had every imaginable strike against her and yet God used her her, ruth to literally change the course of human history and now we're looking at the story of another woman we began at last sunday the story of esther that's why i've asked you to turn to esther chapter two a woman whose situation could not be perhaps any more radically or drastically different than ruth's was a woman who whose story takes place in in, in the realm of royalty in the context of the, of the most influential, powerful empire on the face of the earth at that point in time, and yet God was doing the very same kind of work in and through her, the same kind of work he wants to do in and through you and me. And I am excited to take this next step in the book of Esther this morning, so I hope by now you've found your place and are ready to meet me in Esther chapter 2, where we're actually going to read, once again, the entire chapter. It's all one story that we need to see from start to finish so if you'll follow along in the scripture this is what the word of God says Esther 2 verse 1 after these things the events of course of chapter 1 when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her and then the king's attendants who served him said let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then, let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. The matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now, the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Now Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, When the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, that the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month Tibet, Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. Now in those days, when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthanon, and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. You know, I believe with all my heart that every true believer in Jesus Christ wants to be used by God. That each and every one of us who has repented of our sin and called on Christ as Savior, we want to know that in one way or another, we are making an impact for the kingdom. We are being used by God to spread the gospel, to help change the world, so that more and more people will come to know Christ. We all have a desire to make a difference for Jesus. But at the same time, I also believe with all my heart that many of us harbor a notion deep down inside, a notion that maybe we've never shared with anyone before, but we have the notion that certain advantages in life would make us more effective, more successful in making a difference for Jesus if only I could preach like Billy Graham. If only I could sing like Lauren Daigle, if only I had elite athletic skills or some other uh, socially acclaimed platform from which I could use that platform because of the skills and gifts and abilities I have to make a difference for Jesus Christ, well then I'd be affected. In other words, to put it another way and to put it more succinctly, many of us as believers deep down inside consider being ordinary a disadvantage, that we can't do much for Jesus because we aren't that special. However, I submit to you as we begin this morning that the story we just read says something very, very different. Because after banishing his wife, the queen, from the palace forever in a drunken rage back in chapter 1, as we saw together last Sunday, King Ahasuerus, king of the Persian Empire, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that particular point in time, woke up here at the beginning of chapter 2 to realize he'd done a very foolish thing. And, and to, to realize furthermore that he needed a new queen because we saw last Sunday that once a law was passed, once a, an executive order was given, once the king's word went out in that empire at that point in time, it couldn't be revoked. It couldn't be reversed. And, and so he realizes Vashti's out. I need to find someone new. And since Since King Ahasuerus' advisors knew that he was a go-big-or-go-home kind of guy, listen again to their proposal. Look in your Bible at verse 2. The king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch. He will take care of them. And then, verse 4, let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. Now, do not be fooled into thinking or presuming that this was some sort of innocent Miss Persia beauty pageant. Because it wasn't. Also, and I'm going to say this several more times as we work our way through the book of Esther because it's going to need to be said again. Please understand or remember as the case may be that the Bible does not endorse everything it reports. The Bible tells us what happened, good, bad, and otherwise. That does not mean the Bible endorses what took place, and I think it's important at this point to say so. Because given that this king, here's what here's what we just being, what was just being described to us. Given that this king, as we saw last Sunday in chapter 1, ruled over 127 provinces in the known world, a, a kingdom that stretched from modern-day Pakistan all the way down across and into North Africa, Well, this roundup, and that's exactly what it was, a roundup of single, beautiful, young, unmarried women would have involved hundreds, if not thousands, of young ladies. Swept up into the king's harem, and they had zero choice in the matter. The deal was as simple as this. If a man in authority thought she was cute, off to the harem she went to see if she might be the one to be the next queen. And then in that harem, it also, we are told here, she would undergo a a 12-month period of preparation at the end of which she was given one night alone to charm the king. That means exactly what you think it does. After which, the next day, she was shuttled off. She was not returned to the harem that she was brought into, the harem under Haggai, which was for all the young virgins, virgins. She was shuttled off to harem number two, a harem under the custody of a man by the name of Shashgaz. That harem was for the concubines where unless she was the lucky one who turned out to be the king's choice she spent the rest of her life probably never seeing the king again unless of course he wanted another night with her and he summoned her by name to come back to the palace and it was into the center of this sordid reality show that two otherwise very ordinary people were swept. Mordecai, a mid-level government official in the Persian Empire who happened to be of Jewish ancestry, and his younger cousin-turned-adopted daughter, Esther. And here's the thing. Well, in the coming weeks, we are going to see that God did in fact use them in world-changing ways. That is what they were destined for. What our introduction to them here this morning does is it unravels, I believe, and I'm going to suggest to you this morning, it unravels two great myths about usefulness to God. Again, every believer in Jesus Christ, if you know the Lord, you want to make a difference. If you don't want to make a difference for Christ, you better check and make sure you actually know the Lord. But in that case, there are myths we buy into. There are lies we have been told about effective service for the Lord. This story unravels two of them. I'm going to show you what they are, and then we're going to talk about why they matter and what difference they could make for us as followers of Jesus Christ today. So with that said, myth number one. The first myth about usefulness to the Lord, about being an impact man, woman, or young person for Christ in this world, the first myth that this story in Esther 2 unravels is the myth that worldly resources are an advantage. The myth that the more you've got, in whatever capacity you want to think of it, the more effective you will be. Because that is what we think, right? If only I had. If only I could. If only I wasn't. If only I knew how. If only. And then you fill in the blank with whatever goes in the rest of that sentence. Then, the if-then statement is, well, then I'd be doing great things for Jesus. But you see, I've got all these limitations. I've got all these disadvantages. I've got these various strikes against me. And yes, I understand, I recognize that by the end of this chapter, Esther was queen of the world's biggest empire. I also know, and and you will need to know if you haven't read ahead yet, that by the end of the book, Mordecai will be King Ahasuerus as one of his very top advisors, one of his right-hand men. But prior to all that, here's what I want you to see. Prior to those great things becoming so, take note with me very, very quickly. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I just want you to listen and follow along through the text. Of all the things that Esther and Mordecai had absolutely no control over whatsoever. Starting in verse 1, which was the king's need for a new queen. They didn't, they didn't have any any control over that that wasn't a decision they got to make nor did they have any secondly control in verses two through four about his advisors a very racy plan to find a new one they had no ability to push back against that whatsoever verse five mordecai had no control over the fact that he was a racial minority in a foreign kingdom that he was a jew living among gentiles of course that by extension was the same for esther too verse six he had no control Over the fact that not only was he a racial minority, he was a, socially, he was the son of exiles. He was an alien living in a foreign land. Verse seven Esther had zero control over the fact that when she was young, she lost both of her parents. She had no control over the fact that she was adopted by her older cousin. She had no say in the fact that she was a woman of great beauty. And, and there, specifically there, where we think, well, well, certainly that was in advance. She was a beautiful woman. Was it? It made her a target. It meant she got caught in the roundup, taken away from the life she knew with no choice in the matter. Verses 8 and 9, she had no control over the fact that she was taken into Haggai's custody and that he immediately, for whatever reason, found favor in her. Verse 12, she had no control over the length of time spent in the harem, the length of time she would wait before going into the king. And verse 14, she certainly had no control over the way the king would conduct himself toward her during that night. She had no control over the fact that when next morning came, she'd be placed among the king's concubines, as I said, probably for the rest of her life. She had no control, verses 16 and 17, over the fact that she was ultimately chosen as queen. And at the end of the story, verses 21 through 23, what looks like a postscript, but actually is is set up for a a very pivotal moment that's going to come later on, I'd say to you that Mordecai also had no control over the fact that somehow he overheard, somehow he became aware of a plot to kill the king, and he was the man who had to decide, what do I do with it? He didn't want to be in that position. And yet there he was. In other words, here's what I'm saying. And uh, the Holman Bible commentary probably puts it better than I could when it says that, quote, when Esther, think about this, when Esther was chosen for the king's harem, she had no assurance of the future, no premonition of her forthcoming role or its risks. She was taken regardless of her opinions, her emotions, her fears, or her desires. No prophet assured her, no voice inspired her. She couldn't look heavenward and discern a a, a sign in the sky or peer into the distance and and, and recognize the cumulative effects of her circumstances. In other words, where it was leading and what was going to happen. In other words, here's the point. She had to do life in the real world. In real time. With real challenges, obstacles, problems, limitations. Just like you do. And just like I do too. This is a real-world story of someone who, unlike us, doesn't know where it's going. We've got all ten chapters. She didn't. And this is where they are. And I would say to you that simply recognizing, acknowledging that fact can go a long way toward unraveling this prevalent Christian myth that resources are an advantage. If only I had. If only I could. If only I knew. If only I could get. It may matter to you. It doesn't matter to God. The first myth, this story begins to unravel. The second one is this. The second myth that Esther's, the, the introduction to Esther and Mordecai we're given here unravels is that ordinary moments don't really matter. That the ordinary moments in life don't really very much matter. You know, at the very end of. Uh, My sophomore year in Bible college, I was really, really conflicted, almost literally to the last day of the semester about what I was supposed to do with my summer. And, uh, And if you've been there, you know that. I mean, there's these constant decisions you're making at that season in life, and every one of them feels so very big. Well, I was in that moment. I was in that mode. And, uh, and I basically had two options before me I was trying to choose from. One option was to go back home and do the job I'd been doing all through high school and through my first year of college when I was home coaching gymnastics. It was a job I knew with people I knew. It paid well. I was pretty good at it. And I'd be around my family and friends. And, and it helped me save up for the fall semester. And there were all these sorts of uh, positives about that option. It was a, it was a good option. Well, on the other hand, the other option was to... Except an internship, a youth ministry internship at a church I'd never been to, in a place I'd never gone, among people I'd never met, far, far away in the, in the very strange and unusual land of the Oklahoma panhandle, and I had to decide which one of these things am I going to do, and I was stuck. Well, at the end of the year, each year at Emmaus Bible College, we have a, a, a retreat. We all go away for a weekend and just spend some time together, and we worship, and, 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 and we have a guest speaker. Well, the guest speaker that particular weekend just so happened to be John North of Evangelism Shift. Uh, we knew him at the time. We brought him in, and, and I had a chance to sit down with John because I had met him. I'd spent some time with him before. And I just needed somebody, I needed somebody objective, somebody unbiased to, to give me a A wise bit of counsel. And so I laid the problem out, and I'm sure I made it much more dramatic than it actually was. But I I laid it out just the same, and I said, John, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, I was in a situation like that once, and somebody told me something, and it's what I'm going to tell you. He said, do whichever one takes more faith. Choose the path that takes more faith. He said, I'm not going to tell you which one takes more faith. You've got to figure that out. But, but I think if you choose the one that requires more faith, you'll probably be on the right track. Now on the whole, that was a very ordinary conversation. It was 30 minutes on a park bench by a lake in Southern Wisconsin. But in retrospect, it was one of the major turning points in my entire life because of what it led to. And, and even in the immediacy of it, what happened? Because by choosing the internship, the option that, that I understood after praying about it to take more faith, first of all, I learned, A, I am not youth ministry material. <laughs> it was not a, I mean, I learned some stuff, but I learned I should never be a youth pastor. So that was very helpful in that way. And then B, it was also the place where over the course of that summer, uh, my now wife and I, we were dating at the time had the opportunity just through some concentrated time together to begin to work through our relationship and determined by the end of that summer that, that God indeed was leading us to marriage to do life and ministry together as a couple. In other words, it was an occasion where I learned as one of our women's ministry leaders shared with me in our conversation about these books a while back, your moments make a life. It's your moments that make up and add up to a life and and here, too, what I'm trying to tell you is Mordecai and Esther, they, they are showing us the way. They are, they are bearing this out. Because, again, let's walk through the story one more time. Look at all the ordinary moments where out of, primarily just out of necessity, something had to be done. A choice had to be made. An, an action had to be taken. Just the simple, ordinary ups and downs of life added up to something of world-changing significance. I think the first one is found in verse 7 where Esther, after losing her parents at a young age, well, somebody had to take care of her. Mordecai was the guy. Out of necessity, I'm going I'm to raise this young lady, this little girl, as my own. Verse 10, his counsel to Esther upon being taken into the harem not to reveal her Jewish identity. What we're going to see as we go through the rest of the book of Esther that anti-Semitism was a huge, huge problem in the Persian Empire. And he said, my my counsel is to to keep that a secret. Verse 11, you see just the ordinary concern, the ongoing concern of Mordecai. It, it says that after she was taken into the harem, Mordecai every day would walk back and forth in front of the court of the harem just to try to hear something about how she was and how she fared. How, how, how can I, is there anything I can do to help her? He's just doing the ordinary stuff of life that you would have done if, if you were in his sandals too. Verse 15, Esther's choice to heed Haggai's advice. What should I do on this? Night with the king, and he gives her counsel. She makes the choice to heed it. Verse 20 After being chosen as queen, Esther continues, it says, she continued to heed and to seek Mordecai's counsel as she had done when under his care, just to continue to choose to seek wise counsel. Verse 22. It was an ordinary decision, an ordinary moment born of necessity that upon hearing the plot to assassinate the king, Mordecai said, well, I've got to do something with this. So he reports it to Esther. Esther then makes the ordinary but necessary choice to turn around and tell the king. Ordinary moments make a life. Ordinary choices are going somewhere. The things we do, the way we do them, the choices we make, the paths we walk, We step out on. Those add up to the overall direction of our life. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once, many years ago, said, (laughs) love this, he said, when I pray, coincidences happen. Let me try that again. When I pray, coincidences happen. (laughs) Thank you. And he said, when I don't, they don't. And what happened here was the same basic thing. Through moments of successive... Ordinary, obedient living. Do waking, what we talk about in Ruth over and over again. Waking up each day and doing what had to be done, whether you had it on the schedule or it just came up. Ordinary, obedient living, what happened? Mordecai and Esther found themselves in just the right place. At just the right time. To fulfill God's purposes in world changing ways. And if as a follower of Jesus today, that's the kind of life you want to live. You want to be a person of impact. It doesn't mean you're going to stand on a stage. It doesn't mean the world's going to know your name. Most of us, that'll never ever be the case. But if you want to live a life of eternal significance, well, having sought to at least unravel these two myths that worldly resources are an advantage and 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 hear that ordinary moments don't really matter. Well, I want to just, in our last few minutes together, from this story, seek to offer each one of us four keys to an impactful life based on this story. And I'm not talking about impact. I, I think you understand in the worldly sense of the word, but as a follower of Christ. Because if, if we are, are able to, in our own minds and hearts, dispel these myths, well, then we're able to move in the right direction for Jesus and and I see in this story four keys we can draw from it. Number one, this is absolutely the most foundational, most essential. There is no other alternative to it. Jesus must be your Savior. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What if you get it all? What if you have it all? What if you can do it all? What if you can flaunt it all? And you never dealt with the most important issue in life, a Savior. Well, then you will not ultimately, when it's all said and done, have lived a life of significance. It may be, have been an influential one, but it's wood, hay, stubble. And if Jesus isn't your Savior, it's eternal separation from him. See, if you trace carefully Mordecai's conduct through this chapter, if you were just go back and see the way he worked, the way he conducted himself, the things he did, it's clear to me, and I, I suggest it would see, become clear to you, that his actions were primarily, if not exclusively, dictated by his identity as a Jew, by his faith, by. By the fact that he was one of God's chosen people. And, and, and later on, the same we're going to see goes for Esther. At her moment of greatest crisis, at her, at her most pivotal decision she's ever going to make, the decisions she makes, the choices she, she settles on and follows through on are dictated by the fact that she was one of God's chosen people. It was her faith. And today it's the same. A life of lasting significance flows only out of a saving relationship with Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesse, I don't know if he did it off the the top of his head because it wasn't on the screen, but he referenced Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 because I was thinking the same thing. We are his, listen, we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works that god prepared beforehand that we should walk in him you are his workmanship he's got stuff he wants to do in you and through you but but the heart of the matter is in the middle of that verse in christ jesus are you in christ jesus or are you just going to church have you repented of your sin have you trusted christ as saviour We're really glad you're here, but if you haven't trusted Jesus, the most important thing is missing. And the cost is eternal. It won't try to scare me into making a decision. Well, it's the most serious decision you can ever make. I'm just telling you the way it is. According to God's word. Give your life to Jesus Christ. What do people think? It doesn't matter. What does God think? Christ must be your savior. Then, once that matter is settled, once that decision has been made, secondly, we need to understand as we go through life as followers of Jesus, seeking to live lives of impact, that God, secondly, God's invisibility is not a sign of inactivity. God's invisibility, the fact that you can't figure out where he is or what he's doing, is not a sign of inactivity. Remember the most unique thing I told you last Sunday about the book of Esther. I told you it's the only book in the entire Bible where God's name is never mentioned. In fact, nobody even makes reference to him. It doesn't say, well, he prayed or she prayed or, or they, they gave it. No, God's name is never mentioned in this book even once. Let me ask you a question. Can you honestly look at this chapter and say God wasn't involved? Can you honestly look at this story and say there was not a providential hand behind the scenes doing some stuff? No way. God is always present. He is always working. He is not, however, obligated to show his hand every time we tell him he should. Do not mistake Invisibility for inactivity. That's the second key to pressing on to an impactful Christian life. Third, and we talked about this one already, but I want to drill down further. We must understand, we must accept the fact that our limitations, say my limitations, are not liabilities. Your limitations are not necessarily your liabilities. Because along with Esther and Mordecai, the list of of Bible characters whom God used out of their most deepest weaknesses, out of their their greatest disadvantages, uh, the restrictions and limitations that that, that may have seemed in the moment or or in that point in their life even debilitating, uh, the list of people who God met in a place like that and used in world-changing ways is very, very long. Abraham and Sarah were on Medicare when they got pregnant. Moses stuttered. Joseph was a slave. David was the youngest of eight sons of a shepherd. So insignificant, even in his own father's eyes, he didn't bother to call him in when Samuel came around. Peter had a fiery temper. So did James and John. The list goes on and on and on and on. Yet, it was in each of those apparent weaknesses and limitations that God did some of his very best work. Let me ask you something. What, quote unquote, disadvantages in your life, limitations, deficiencies, may actually be the very thing God intends to use for his glory? Listen, he's been doing it for years. I'm not saying he will, I'm just saying he can, and he might. And we need to stop looking at disabilities, limitations as liabilities, but perhaps opportunities for God to do great things. Then, fourth and finally, Christ must be your Savior. God is always working. Limitations are not a problem to Him. And we must start with obedience to God in the ordinary. You want to make a difference in this world for Christ, start obeying God in the ordinary because it is a proven fact. Listen to me. This may blow your mind. You can't serve God where you are not. You can only serve him where you are. I don't like where I am. Well, that's probably something you can't control right now, but you can't serve him where you aren't. But if only I could, no, that's not how it works. But if only I went, no, not an option. We start by serving God where we are. And that is precisely what Mordecai and Esther did here. And, and take note, it wasn't easy. Hard things came their way. But, but it was through faithful obedience in the ordinary, doing the best they knew to do Because of their faith, because of who they were in the moment with the choices placed before them. It was faithful obedience in the ordinary that they advanced God's plans and God's purposes on this planet. And it is exactly the same for me and you. Exactly the same. Faithful obedience in the ordinary is how we move toward maturity in Christ. So here's the bottom line of our look at Esther 2. Esther and Mordecai were both bound by things in life they could not control. You are too, in some way or another. But at the same time, they were also determined to do what they knew was right. To do what God gave them opportunity to do. Through which God, listen, positioned them to deal with a crisis that hadn't even arisen yet. He was up to something more. That is why the big idea of today's message is simply this. Do what honors God in the moment and then turn around and do it again in the next one. Do what honors God in the moment. Respond to what he gives you. Serve him where you are. And then do it again next time. Father, the fact that you not only, as your word says, reach down into... The ash heap of this world and lifted us up, changed us and made your own, but then also have determined to use people like us in your purposes and plans. Father, it's it's a story that none of us would ever even dream of coming up with. And yet it is who you are and it is what you do. And Father, every life here this morning, every man, woman, and young person, wherever we are, however we're created, whatever our strengths and weaknesses may be is an instrument that you intend to use in ways that, well, that this side of heaven we may never see the outcome of. But you are up to things that are great. Father, I pray that you would, would no longer let us buy into the lie that our lives don't matter. That the little stuff doesn't matter. That, that we could never be used like whoever that person is we've been comparing us ourselves to for years. Father, what matters is that we are yours, and that being yours, we are obedient to you. Father, I believe when you look on this room, you see potential world changers in each and every row. You see possibilities in each and every life and heart. Father, that we, if you told us, we'd probably say, yeah, right. And yet you intend to use us for your glory. Father, help us to walk in obedience this week, to trust you with the obstacles and the invisibility that we encounter, and then let you do your thing in your time, in your way, for your glory, and we will return the praise for it back to you. Father, as always, take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning and seal them to our hearts. Let all the rest fade away so we walk out of here looking to and heeding Jesus only, in whose name we pray. Amen.